Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Father, as you see us, we pray that we would feel your eyes upon us, and that we would strive to enter into the reward that you have promised. Open your word to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it took us so long to get through Matthew 5 that it's kind of exciting to finally be in Matthew chapter 6. But before we think about Matthew 6, if you'll indulge me, I want to refresh your memory about something that happens in Luke's gospel in Luke 18. It's a parable that Jesus tells that I think you'll see has immediate relevance here in Luke 18 Verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the two men who go into the temple to pray. He compares their prayers. Uh, The Pharisee has a very uh, eloquent and self-serving prayer, and he goes home unjustified. But the tax collector cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and he leaves justified. Jesus points out the contrast between the two. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. When you think about that story, one thing that may not be readily apparent is that that Pharisee, although he looks in the parable to us like a hypocrite, in ordinary life would be a man we respected. In ordinary life would be someone whose piety we admire. He would be the kind of person that we would look to for leadership in faith. In the parable, we see inside the heart, and so we understand how different the man is from what he seems to be, but in everyday life, we don't see people's hearts. We judge by outward appearances. Unfortunately, we also play to outward appearances as well. When we look for an example of who to follow, an example of good leadership, it's interesting to see which of the two examples we might be drawn to. 
It's rare for us to look for repentance in leaders. What we tend to look for is virtue. If I'm looking for someone to follow, someone who I'm going to shape my life according to, I want to find someone who appears to be righteous, who is doing the right things, who's living the right way. But if you consider that, then you understand a little bit about the way of the Pharisee. Because in essence, the Pharisee lives for what you're looking for. He lives a life that looks right in your eyes, as if that's what really mattered. He appears to be what he ought to be, but he sets out to appear that way. That kind of outward righteousness is not like the antidote or the answer to the self-righteousness that we saw in the last chapter. It's just another kind of self-righteousness to be on guard against. Jesus, as he teaches us here, is saying to us that it's time to stop performing righteousness and start actually practicing it. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the lesson. And then he illustrates it with these three examples that we'll look at. But let's take the big lesson first. and You can see how it's connected to what's gone on before. In Matthew 5, Jesus focused on ways that a person can convince himself that he's righteous before God, even though he's not actually perfect. But there's a way that we can use the law as a cover for our own hardness of heart. Now he's talking about a different kind of self-righteousness, and it's a self-righteousness that honestly isn't even taking what God thinks into account. He's not trying to imagine himself justified in the eyes of God. He's actually using his worship, his righteousness, in order to be justified in the eyes of men, to look good to other people. He is performing an act of righteousness that is meant to be seen. Jesus calls this person a hypocrite. He calls this person a hypocrite, and hypocrites do good work. Hypocrites pursue righteousness. There's no question about that. The question is, who do they pursue it for? Jesus says hypocrites do good works before other people in order to be seen by them. He says they do it so that they may be praised by others, seen by others. Even their fasting is done so that it may be seen by others. The eyes of other people, of our fellow human beings, that's what they're doing this righteousness for. They do it in the synagogues where they can be seen. They do it in the streets boldly where they can be seen by other people. Jesus isn't impressed. Jesus says you should just stop. You should stop this performance of righteousness and start actually practicing righteousness as you should. So to keep things straight in our mind, I'm going to talk about righteousness two ways. I'm going to talk about performing righteousness as an act and then practicing righteousness for real. And the difference between performing righteousness and practicing righteousness has to do with who you do it for. Performing righteousness is doing good in the public eye with the intention of being seen and praised and rewarded by the world. Practicing righteousness truly is doing good in secret 
intending to be seen and rewarded by God. When you think about this, this is one of those passages that translates pretty easily into our contemporary moment. Sometimes what the Bible teaches feels uh, archaic, difficult, like it's, it's a message from the past. This feels super relevant, like Jesus was onto something that we've only now begun to understand. We don't use this language for it, but we talk about it, it seems like a lot, uh, virtue signaling. People are constantly being called out for virtue signaling, for performative behavior that is not sincere, that it's just meant to show what a good person you really are. It's interesting to see in modern society that this kind of behavior is not on the wane as we march forward into a post-Christian world. It's actually on the rise. A couple of years ago, I read a book by Joseph Bottom called An Anxious Age, where he talked about this sort of new moralistic strain in our culture. He called it the social gospel without the gospel pointing out the irony that even though as a society we have said we don't believe that there's a God, human beings, despite rejecting God officially, are still behaving as if they have this need to be justified. Behaving as if they need to be moral and good and upright. That hasn't changed. And you wouldn't expect it to, because human beings, no matter what they believe, are made in the image of God. We are made for worship. And so you should expect to find us worshiping, whether we believe that we are worshiping or not. We have a built-in need to worship. We have a built-in need to know that we are righteous, to know that we are justified, okay, approved of, in the eyes of God. And if there is no God... In our equation, we have to seek that validation somewhere else. And so it makes sense if you can't seek it up there, that you have to seek it down here. That that what used to be directed toward God and worship now must be directed towards one another for approval. That makes sense. So when you hear people talking about this stuff, don't make the mistake of thinking that we've entered into some sort of new age of humanity where we have these new problems that no one ever had before. Jesus was talking about this long ago. This isn't part of the 21st century condition. This is part of the human condition. This gives us a way of understanding what's really going on. Our post-Christian culture may manifest a new form of this behavior, but it's not new behavior. Jesus reveals that just like the moralism that we saw in Matthew 5, this performative righteousness is yet another way for sinful human beings to satisfy or suppress The creatures need to worship the Creator. That's what's really going on in the life of the Pharisee and in the life of modern Pharisees everywhere. Finding something else to worship than the God who made us, preferably ourselves. Performers do good for the eyes of men, for the approval, the reward of men. But Jesus says we should do good for God's eyes instead. And he gives us three illustrations of this. He talks about giving to the needy, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. And what these all have in common is that these are all acts of worship. These are all things people do as acts of worship. When we give to the poor, we pray to dedicate our tithes and offerings because we do that as worship. In other words, we do it to glorify God. 
prayer itself is something we do as worship. So is fasting. And so Jesus shows in each case a contrast. And each contrast follows a particular structure, a two-part structure. You might think there's going to be a warning, and then there's going to be an application. And to make it clear, Jesus actually brackets them with repeated phrases. So you'll see that in each of these three examples, the warning ends with the same words. Jesus will say, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And that brackets the warning. And then when he gives the application, when he tells us how we ought to live, he does the same thing again. He ends by saying, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So in each of these three cases, you'll see that repetition and see the the similarity of the structure. So he says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See how that works. Now, you may see what Jesus says about giving to the needy, and you may think that he's addressing some secondary concern, because after all, the needy people care what the motives of the person who helped them really are. If one person is wanting to glorify God, and the other person is wanting to glorify himself, and I'm in need, and the guy who wants to glorify himself says, here, let me help you. Am I going to say, yeah, I'm suspicious of your motives. I, I, I desperately need this help, and I would gladly accept it, but I think you're just doing it for man's praise, so I'm going to pass. Of course not. If you're in need, then you accept help from wherever it comes. And so the quality of the help in terms of the receiving, like the goodness of the good work on the part of the person who receives it, is the same. Like no one, when they receive charity, weighs it and says, this charity was better than that charity because this was done for the glory of God and that was done for man's praise. Although, having said that, I will say that if somebody was going to meet some need of mine, but as part of the process needed to blow some trumpets and get some credit for it, that would add a little dose of humiliation to it, if you think about it. One of the reasons why it's hard for proud people, which is most of us, to accept help is that so often help does come with these strings of uh, glorification attached. We do good work, but before we write the check, we hold a press conference to let people know about the good work that we're going to do so that we receive the credit for it that we hope to receive. And Jesus says, yeah, that's great. That's how that works. You do that, and you have received your reward. You did something good, and it was good, and you were praised for it in this life. You got rewarded for it. That's where it ends. The performer can give real help and receive real praise in this life. But because he did it for himself and not for God, the reward ends there. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's not calling attention to what you might think of as like the quality of the act in its result. He's talking more about the reward of the act, the significance, the larger significance of the act. When you give in secret, there's a different outcome. The help is real, although maybe a little better in the sense that it doesn't come with that helping of publicity. But the reward is different. 
because the reward comes from God because it was done for his eyes. So Jesus points out to us a kind of uh, hidden lesson here, like a motivation for why you should do the good that you're called to do. It's a motivation so obvious that he doesn't insult us by spelling it out, but I'm going to go ahead and spell it out. The question behind all this is, who would you rather be rewarded by? Men or God, you choose. If you'd rather receive your reward now from men, then by all means, perform some righteousness. But if you'd rather be rewarded by the God who made all things and sustains all things in the life that is to come, then do righteousness differently. You look at the second illustration on praying. Here it feels like a little bit of a shift because you don't think of prayer as something that has a similar sort of visible real-world effect as giving to the needy, for example. But Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Those of you who grew up in church, this sentiment is familiar to you. I know that I heard sermons, more than one, I believe, where the guy preaching, based on this text, then went on to elaborate how he has applied it in his own life and, and would tell you about like his secret prayer closet. You know, when I pray, I have this little room in the house you know, that I go into and pray, and I feel like that misses the point a little bit, because the first rule of secret prayer closet is that you don't talk about secret prayer closet. Right? That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. And it's funny to me that even making the application here, we just can't help but do it wrong. Like even in, in bragging about the fact that I pray in secret, I do my righteousness in this secluded little room that I have, and I go in there more often than you'd think in order to pray exactly the way Jesus describes. And you're like, that's what he's talking about. Maybe we don't blow trumpets. Maybe we don't stand up in the synagogue the way that the Pharisee in the parable does, but we find our way to get that reward, to get the credit for the piety. And when you think about it with prayer, I mean, if you're going to pray, you want to get some credit. I mean, if you're going to invest that kind of time, you certainly don't want to do it in such a way that people don't even know the sacrifices that you've made. So, When I read this, obviously, you immediately think of the Pharisee and the tax collector in that parable. But the other thing that this helps us do as we make those connections is avoid what I'll call an over-literalism. We've talked about this before, that it's possible because of the, the way that Jesus is speaking here to kind of get in our face and challenge us to take what he's saying in a woodenly literal way and misunderstand it. So I just want to, to point one thing out. Jesus is not saying here that you should only pray in private. Jesus isn't banning public prayer. Jesus isn't saying when you go to church and there's all these other people around and somebody gets up and pray, aha, I got you, this is exactly what I told you not to do. Everybody leave the church now, go home, get in your little secret closet, do it that way. No, he's not saying you shouldn't do good works out of fear that someone might see you. He's making a a different point, but he's doing it in that uh, intensified way in order to show us how high the stakes are. 
when you think about these acts of worship, these are acts of worship that are not intended to glorify self. But they're being used to do exactly that. They're being used to glorify self instead of to glorify God. Right? And that's a possibility when we pursue a life of righteousness. Right? If you do practice righteousness in the world, occasionally people might notice. If you do pray, people might say, hey, good prayer. If you preach a sermon, somebody might come up to you and say, great sermon. I have friends who preach and they tell me that happens a lot. So um, I'm going to take it on faith. And you may, as a result of the practice of genuine righteousness, find yourself in a position where it seems as if you're getting credit that you shouldn't get. Now, in moments like that, what you ought to do is follow the example of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus went to the synagogue. Jesus prayed in public, right? So he's not saying don't do righteousness where it can be seen, because Jesus did righteousness where it could be seen, and the apostles did too. But when they did, and it resulted in this unintended consequence, they corrected it. You see this in the book of Acts. If you look in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the home of the centurion, the centurion kneels down before him and worships him. And Peter doesn't go, oh, this is nice. I'm glad. You know, a lot of people don't appreciate me, but here's someone who does. Now, he immediately rebukes him. He says, stand up. I, too, am a man. And it happens again in Acts 14 to Paul and Barnabas. This one's interesting. Paul and Barnabas, because of the success of their ministry, the priest of Zeus, you know, false god Zeus, says we should offer a sacrifice to these gods. And you might think that is a win, evangelistically speaking. When you have the high priest of the false god offering sacrifices to the evangelists of the gospel, it seems like you are really transforming the culture. But they don't take it that way. They actually rebuke that priest in the same way. They say, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So what Jesus is getting at is this. He's not saying avoid doing good when others might see. He's saying don't do good in order to be seen. That's the difference. Don't do it in order to be seen. And if you do it and you are seen and you get some credit, some glory for it, redirect that to God. To God alone be the glory. The third illustration on fasting, I think, is is the strangest. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Remember, as I said, giving, praying, fasting, these are all aspects of worship. And by definition, acts of worship are intended for God alone. And it's a fundamental distortion of worship to offer it to anyone but God, to direct worship towards the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1, that's essentially what sin is at its base. So we can see that all of these distortions are sinful and all of them are are like false worship. I think fasting is especially egregious in the way that Jesus describes it. They're all egregious. Um, 
Anytime we take what's meant to be an act of worship directed towards God and we turn it into a way of getting glory for ourselves, we're doing what you might think was like the worst possible thing. Like we were made to worship and glorify him. And when we try to steal that glory from him to build ourselves up, that is, of course, a terrible thing. But of all these works of righteousness that we can perform, I think performative fasting, the way that Jesus describes it, is is the most strange. He says they disfigure their faces so that they may be seen. He doesn't say they've been fasting so long, they're so emaciated, that because of that deprivation, their faces have become disfigured. He doesn't put it passively. He says they disfigure their faces so that they may be seen. So here, this is a little different. This isn't doing good, but for the wrong reasons. This is doing something that looks good and introducing some theater into it so that it looks better than it really is. Making it look like you've suffered more than you have. Making it look like you've gone through so much for the sake of Jesus so that other people will admire you and glorify you. Instead, Jesus tells us to go the opposite direction. He says, essentially, to play down the signs of suffering, to minimize what you've been going through, to minimize like the glory, the credit that should accrue to you. He's like, no, wash your face. Look presentable. Don't play it up. Play it down. Because you're enduring this not for them, but for him. And the way that we remember who we endure for faithfully is this. By not playing to the crowd, but by saving it for God alone. Because if we suffer, if we fast, if we pray, if we give for the eyes of the world, we have our reward. And it stops there. If we're going to actually practice righteousness, we have to practice it for a different set of eyes. We have to do it for God's eyes and God's eyes alone. I found myself reflecting on that moment with the priest of Zeus and what that must have been like. You can imagine if if you're a religious leader, a, a person people look up to, and you actually have the humility to come down off your pedestal and acknowledge that these guys who've come to town with this entirely new religion are so right about what they're saying that we should offer a sacrifice to them. Like, you're willing to do that? You're willing to sort of grovel at their feet in that way? They should appreciate it. But instead, despite his willingness to humble himself, that priest of Zeus is rebuked. That must have been really humiliating and frustrating for him. Or it might have been a relief. Because in the rebuke, they share some good news that that guy needed to hear like everybody else. They don't just tell him what he ought to do. They tell him what he should stop doing. They say, you should stop being concerned with these vain things. And the vain things they're talking about are the sacrifices that he makes to a God who doesn't exist. The, the things that he endures, the prayers that he prays to the emptiness, the things that he does that have no benefit except to impress the other people around him, the good news is he can stop. 
And the reason that that's good news is that performance is exhausting. To have to act out righteousness, to have to worry day in and day out what people think about you, whether you're impressing them, whether they, they envy you for your goodness, whether they approve of you or are talking about you behind their back, that's a lot to have to do. And if somebody comes along and says to you, you can stop performing, that is good news. You can lay down the pretense. You can stop playing up your dramas because the eyes that really matter are the eyes of God and God sees you. God sees you. We often act as if the practice of righteousness that Jesus has called us to is really daunting, really exhausting, and that if you lead a life of genuine righteousness, it could easily lead to burnout. But that's not true. Practicing righteousness truly is rejuvenating, it's exciting, it's transformative. What's exhausting is performing righteousness. What's exhausting is doing it for the eyes of men and the praise of men. When we practice righteousness, we're beholding in wonder what God is doing in us and doing through us. But if we're just performing righteousness, all it is is a show, a constant, never-ending attempt to impress the world around us. The key to rest is to realize that in God, you are seen. The key to rest is to realize God sees what you do, and it doesn't matter if anybody else does. That you don't have to worry about whether you're going to get your reward, that you're going to get credit, that you've done good things, and it was hard, but nobody even noticed. Nobody even said thank you. Don't worry about that. You didn't do it for them or their praise. It's better not to have it. You did it for God's eyes, and God sees you. Your obedience may be unseen by us, but it is seen by him, and that's what matters. Because what God sees, God rewards. That's why it's good news that you can turn from the vain pursuit of performing righteousness to the real righteousness of what Paul calls a living God. Leave behind the vain things and enjoy the rest that comes of being seen by the living God. If you want to practice righteousness, do it in secret. I'm not saying never do good where other people can see, but make a, a point of not seeking the eyes of other people, not seeking the praise for the good that you do. Practice righteousness in secret for God's eyes alone. And that means whatever praise accrues to our actions in this life has to be attributed to him. That the glory has to go to him. We don't make it public, then it's not for the eyes of the public. And in that act, we make it clear to ourselves and to God that this is worship and it's meant for him alone. We make it clear that the reward that we hope for is not here, but there. That the reward that we want is not a reward from men but from God. It's a reward not only that we receive in heaven, it is a reward that when you think about it, it was actually earned in heaven too. They said Jesus practiced his righteousness out in the open. There's an interesting thing about that. Jesus' crucifixion 
happened in public. His humiliation, his death happened before the eyes of the world, but in a strange way it happened in secret too. Because as many witnesses as there were to what happened, they didn't understand what it was they were seeing. People misinterpreted the significance of what was happening there, and it was only after the fact, only with the eyes of the Spirit, that they could appreciate what it was that Jesus had actually done. That was the greatest act of worship that any human being has ever offered to God. And yet, it was performed for God's eyes, not for the eyes of the spectators. A perfect human being, Jesus Christ, offering himself up as a perfect sacrifice for God's glory alone. And then it had to be explained afterwards to the people who it was for. The cross was done out in the open, yet it was done in secret too. No one who witnessed it that day realized what they saw. No one but the Father. And it was for his eyes it was done. The author of Hebrews talks about this when he talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, he says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus offered himself to the Father for the Father's eyes so that we might receive the reward of eternal life, so that through faith we might experience all of the glory and the reward that he receives. But if that's true, then you can stop performing. If that is true for you, then you can stop putting on a show of righteousness and be free to actually practice righteousness for God's sake, as Jesus calls us to do. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.